When I tell you I went down a rabbit hole searching and looking into this guy, I went down a rabbit hole. You should see the notepad that I have, like all the notes that I took for this case. So many sticky notes. The man in question today, Albert Fish, aka Hamilton Fish, it's insane the things that I learned about this guy and the fact that like he got away with murder of children for such a long time. There was a certain murder that happened that took him like six years before he was caught. And what's insane is the fact that like i've never heard about this guy before and i know my serial killers i learned about him during at work because you know naturally my coworkers and i were just talking about these different guys and they were like have you heard of albert fish and i was like who the fuck is he and they were like you need to look him up so i looked him up and i was just shocked listen he's up there with dean coral jeffrey dahmer toy box killer the sunset killer he's up there with the werewolf of russia like he is fucking insane and we're gonna be going over him so buckle up because this this one's gonna be rough. Trigger warnings. I will be getting into a lot of descriptions. Um, children are involved, so it's gonna be a bit of a rated R episode. And if you're very sensitive to that, I recommend you listening to something else. This isn't it for you. Yeah, welcome to the first episode of Not Another Scary Story. Not another scary story. I don't know about you, but like sometimes when I'm out with my friends and they like order food, I'm just like, oh, that looks so good. Or, or that friend would like come back from like a recent trip and then they'd be like, oh yeah, I went and I ordered this. This is so good. Like you should, next time you go, you should have this. Or, or maybe they're like, yeah, um, this is how you make this and this is how you prepare it and this is how you eat it. This is exactly the conversation that Albert Fish had with his friend, Captain John Davis. Captain John Davis had a recent trip from San Francisco to Hong Kong and this happened during like the 1870s. Between 1876 to the end of the 19th century, Northern China was hit with a devastating catastrophe called famine. So everyone was starving, like crops were, were gone. There was no food and these poor people were not getting any help at all. The people who tried to survive, they did so in the form of cannibalism. Like Now, at the time, Albert Fish's friend, Captain John Davis, told him that literally children under the ages of 14 were not safe to be on the streets because they would get snatched and they were kidnapped and then they were killed and then they would be served as meat. So he said like children would be hidden and anyone that was out, they weren't safe. John Davis even mentioned like the younger, he said the younger the flesh, the better it tasted, which is sickening. Like how could, how could you ever do something like that? So John Davis was there for such a long time that eventually he acquired the taste of human flesh. He acquired it so much that on his way home to New York from Hong Kong, he kidnapped two children. One was seven and the other one was an 11-year-old. He told Albert in great detail of how he stripped the children, how he tortured them, killed them, and then ate and prepared them. Like, what the fuck goes on in your mind just to like tell your friend casually about this? And, and the sickest part was Davis was never held accountable for this and he was also the one that like put in albert fish's mind to kidnap kids and eat them so who is this albert fish guy you're like you you keep bringing up albert fish who is this guy so albert fish or albert hamilton fish was born in 191870 in washington dc which you i live there to randall fish and ellen fish there is really not a lot of information on his parents except for the fact that both his parents had a 43 year age gap which in my opinion is incredible incredibly gross and predatorial. Yeah, so if you were like, who had the 43-age gap? It was the father. The father was obviously the oldest one because... You know, that's how life worked back in the day, right? Anyways, so he had four siblings and he had three living siblings. So one of the siblings passed away and he was actually named after the one that was passed away, Hamilton. His siblings, his three living siblings named are Walter, Annie, and Edwin. Um, Growing up, his siblings and even like some of the kids in the neighborhood would tease him and call him Ham and Eggs because his name was Hamilton and his name was Fish. So it's like a play on words. And it wasn't until like later on the road that he ended up changing his name to Albert after his dead brother. 
One thing I'd like to point out with Albert Fish and his family is that there's a long history line of mental illness. His uncle was diagnosed with mania. His brother was actually sent to a mental institution and his sister was diagnosed with mental affliction. Also, his mom had a bunch of like visual hallucinations. Like I'm not saying she was schizo, but like uh, when I was reading this, I was like, oh, it sounds like she was like schizophrenic, but I digress. And then he had three other relatives that were also put in the mental institution. So at the time, his father was a riverboat captain, but then later on he became a fertilizer manufacturer. And this was like in the 1870s. So think back in the day. Five years later, 1875, his father um, had a heart attack and passed away. And so unable to provide financial stability as well as mental stability for our family, Albert's mom ended up putting him and his siblings into the orphanage. Now, I just want to make clear that it was very common during that time where parents couldn't, if they couldn't afford to take care of their children, they would send them to these institutions, orphanages, where they would have sisters or caretakers or nuns look after these kids. This was like foster care before foster care was like a whole separate thing. So essentially they didn't put the kids up for adoption. They just put them in these institutions to keep an eye on their kids. It's kind of like boarding school, but for the more impoverished people. It's interesting. I'm actually reading a book called The Ghost of the Orphanage by Christine. I think her name is Kennelly. Kennelly. I'm reading it currently. And it's like different stories of kids being thrown in orphanages during the early 1900s and like in the mid 1900s. And they go in like great detail of like the abuse, sexual, physical, psychological abuse that goes on into orphanages. Anyway, it's incredibly fascinating. And when I was reading this book, all I could think of was like about Albert Fish and like what he went through because we're gonna get into the things that happened to him in the orphanage and it's like holy shit no child should have gone through what he went through so at five years old albert was put in this orphanage and for the f next four years of his young adolescent life he would be beaten and sexually assaulted in the orphanage by caretakers and fellow boys it was said that he began to look forward to the abuse because it brought him pleasure and when asked about the orphanage fish would like remark oh i was there till i was nearly nine and that's where I got started wrong. We were unmercifully whipped. I saw boys doing many things they should not have done. So by the time he was nine years old, his mom found a stable job and then was able to like look after him. Um, at this time, it was 1879. He had very little formal education and grew up learning to work more with his hands than his brains. It wasn't long after Fish returned to live with his mother that he began a relationship with another boy. He was just called the telegraph boy. That he doesn't have a name, but Fish would recall call and say like uh, his nickname was the telegraph boy. Anyway, this boy introduced him to drinking urine and coprophagia, which I know I just butchered that word. Let's try that again. Coprophagia. Coprophagia. Anyways, it's the eating of one stool or feces, so like literally eating your own shit. Um, so fish would frequently partake in this, which I'm like, like I know you were so abused in an orphanage, but like how do you go from that to that at such a young age? Like I know kids are very impressionable and like very easily coercible, but like I, I don't know, just like when I read about that, I was like, Ugh. during this time, fish would frequently visit the baths as a child, and he would watch boys and older men undress and wash. And it was said that he would spend a great deal of his time at these places. By 1890, when he was 20 years old, Albert would relocate to New York. That's where he began his crimes against children. He started to molest boys regularly. He would lure children from their homes, torture them in various ways. His favorite was uh, using the paddle laced with sharp nails, and then he would rape them and then murder them. As time went on, his sexual fantasies with children grew more fiendish and bizarre, often ending, like I said, murdering the poor child and then even sometimes like eating them. At 20, as he was doing all these crimes, his mother arranged a marriage for him, and even after he married his wife, he continued on committing these crimes. Like, there was no stopping this guy. So by 1898, he was married to Anna Mary Hoffman, who was nine years his junior, and they had six children, Albert, Anna, Gertrude, Eugene, John, and Henry Fish. And in 1903, Fish was arrested for grand larceny, convicted, and incarcerated in Sing Sing. On his releasement from prison, he took up jobs as a house painter, where he would continue to molest children. He preyed upon boys' 
uh, six years or younger. Several years go by. It's, what, 1910. Fish was working in Wilmington, Delaware, where he met the 19-year-old Thomas Keaton. He took Keaton to where he was staying, and the two began a sadomasochistic relationship. It's unclear whether or not Fish forced Keaton to do certain things, but in his confessions down the line, it was implied that Keaton was intellectually disabled, and therefore the relationship was not consensual. After 10 days that Fish took Keaton to an old farm where he ended up torturing him for over a period of two weeks. Can you guys imagine two weeks of horrific torture? Fish eventually would tie up Keaton and cut off half of his penis and he quotes, I shall never forget his scream or the look he gave me, end quote. He originally intended to kill Keaton, but he feared that the hot weather would draw attention to him. So instead, Fish poured peroxide over the wound, wrapped it in a Vaseline-covered handkerchief, left a $10 bill, kissed Keaton goodbye and left. He quoted in, in the trial, he said, took first train I got, I could get back home. Never heard what became of him or try to find out. I just want to know what goes on through your mind to kidnap someone, torture them extensively for two weeks, mutilate them, and then just like slap on a band-aid and kiss them goodbye and give them a $10 bill. Like what goes on in your mind? Like I don't even get it, but like I understand to a certain degree like the psychological damage that one went through as a a young age, the physical abuse, the sexual abuse that Fish went through as a child to lead up to this point. But at the same time, like, I don't understand what goes on through your mind to do this to another human being and then just be like, well, I guess this is it. In January 1917, uh, Fish's wife, honestly, just was fed up with him and left. It ended up, she ended up marrying some other guy. His name was John Stroop, uh, who was like a handyman that was like living with them at some time. And she ended up leaving him with the six kids. At one point, it like got so bad that Fish would like have auditory hallucinations to the point like one time he wrapped himself up in a carpet saying that he was following the instruction of John the Apostle. And this is something that you'll be hearing a lot throughout this case is the fact that he would have these religious hallucinations and be like, oh, God told me to do this or John the Apostle came to me or like oh I am a prophet and I'm gonna go like I was told to do these actions to children and I'm just sitting there reading this like how dumb do you think I am I know you're batshit fucking crazy but like you're not that batshit fucking crazy so it was about this time that Fish began to indulge in self-harm by embedding needles into his groin and abdomen and like after his arrest they x-rayed him right and it revealed that he had at least 29 needles lodged in his pelvic region. Like, I'm talking about, like, needles that you would stick in your arm, like, to draw blood, or just, like, sewing needles. Like, there's actually an x-ray picture that I saw, and just the amount of needles that were stuck, and I was like, what the fuck were you on? Just, like, ow, first of all. But second of all, like, this guy was really sated, like, sadistic. Not just to other people around him, but to himself. And, like, as someone who's just, I have a high pain tolerance, but what makes you think, yeah, it's a Monday, um, I'm gonna go stick some needles at my groin. He would also hit himself repeatedly with a nail-studded paddle. He would insert wool doused with lighter fluid into his anus, his butt, and then set it alight. I just what? I don't, I don't, under, I'm not laughing, but like, I'm just like shocked someone would do that. Like a part of me when I was reading this, I was like, this can't be real. Like this cannot be real. But you know, when you've been in the true crime world and you've listened to stuff like this over and over, it's like, yeah, it's actually believable. While Fish was never thought to have physically attacked or abused his children, he did encourage them and their friends to um, physically abuse him. So in a way, he was like a abused his kids psychologically and uh, mentally. Tell me why this man would strip down into his undergarments and then play a really sadistic game with his kids. His stepdaughter during the trial, who was 17 at the time, her name was Mary Nicholas, she testified how Albert or Fish would teach her, her brothers and sisters, this game. This is what she said in the court. I'm going to read it word for word. He went into his room and he had a little pair of trunks, brown trunks that he put on. He put those on and came out into the front room and he got down on his hands and knees and he had a paint stick that he stirred paint with. 
he would give the sticks to one of us and then he would get down on the, his hands and knees and we would sit on his back one at a time with our back facing him and then we would put up so many fingers and he was to tell how many fingers we had up and if he guessed right which he never did why we weren't supposed to hit him sometimes he would even say more fingers than we really had and if he never guessed right why we would hit him as many fingers as we would have end of quote so essentially he, this grown man with his children would come in in his undergarments and then have the guessing game with fingers and if he guessed wrong he would have the children hit them or he would hit himself with the amount of fingers he guessed wrong i just i don't even want to imagine my own like i just don't even ugh. Like, I'm already throwing up in my mouth as it is, but like, can you imagine your own father just coming in and being like, hey, we're going to play this game? Like, that would scar me for life. I can't imagine what his children went through. It's hard to believe that he wasn't physically abusive. I'm just speculating. Around 1919, Fish stabbed an intellectually disabled boy in Georgetown, which, interesting enough, is like a town next over to where I live. So like, I was there the other day and I was like, oh, Fish was here. He chose people who are there mentally disabled as his victims because, and this is so sad, because he would later on explain that he assumed that these people would not be missed when killed. So Fish would later claim to have occasionally paid boys to bring other children, and then he would proceed to torture, rape, and butcher the children with what he called his meat cleaver, butcher knife, and small handsaw, quotes, instruments of hell. One of his victims, or one of the people that he tried to prey upon, was um, Beatrice Keel. It was on July 11th, 1924, he found eight-year-old Beatrice Keel playing alone on her parents' farm on Staten Island, New York. He offered her money to come and help look for rhubarb. For those who don't know, rhubarb is like this plant. So she was about to leave the farm when her mother chased Fish away. Fish left, but later returned to the farm where he tried to sleep, but then was discovered by Beatrice's father who like chased him away. Three days later, Fish killed Francis McDonald, also on Staten Island. During 1924, 54-year-old Fish suffered from psychosis and felt that God was commanding him to torture and sexually mutilate children. Children. Listen, I know there's like a level of batshit crazy and I feel like sometimes I am on the spectrum of being just freaking delusional, but this guy takes the whole delusional cake. What makes you think God is just being like, yeah, I want you to kidnap a child, brutally murder them, and then eat them. It's like a great, a great example of people using God to get what they want. I want to talk to you guys about a little girl named Gracie Bud. She was considered a very bright, happy, beautiful child child at 10 years old. She had these brilliant brown curls and these big brown eyes and she was just a very happy child. She had three siblings, uh, two older brothers, Edward and Willie, and one younger sister named Beatrice. She had a father and mother, Albert Bud Sr. and Delia Bud. And even though their family wasn't rich or had a lot of money, they were a happy family. They did the best that they could. They looked out for one another. Unfortunately, there wasn't like a lot of information on their family, but this is just to give you an idea of who Gracie Bud was. She was the type of person who was always just cheerful and happy and always ready to help people. Um, she had just returned home from church with her sister. It was a great day because it was confirmation day, so she was wearing her silk dress. She was all white. She had ribbons in her hair, pearls around her neck. She was just so happy. It was just a beautiful day. So she opened the door and she was surprised to see this older gentleman just sitting there with her parents just talking. And she's like, who is this man? Like, I've never seen this guy before. And then it clicked. This was the guy that was going to hire her brothers, Edward and, and Willie, to come work on his farm. So her older brother had wanted to make a name for himself and help his family out. And he had put out in an ad in the newspaper looking for a man named Frank Howard came and answered that ad. He was like, hey, I have this farm in Farmingdale on Staten Island. It's just beautiful little farm. Like my kids um, built it with me. I have a cook and I just, my handyman is gone. I need somebody to come help on there and you would be perfect. I would pay you and your brother $15 a week, which at that time you have to understand $15 a week. It's like, it was a lot of money. Frank Howard meets Gracie Bud and they have a great conversation. Just um, Frank Howard was just saying like, oh, she's such a lovely girl. Like she's so beautiful and intelligent. And then he's like, hey, Gracie, let's see how good of a counter you are. And from within his pocket, he pulls out like this 
big ass wad of cash which boggled the buds minds because they've never seen that much money so they were shocked and they were just like oh my god and gracie good naturally was like okay i'll show you what i got so she just starts counting and after a minute of counting she's like i've got 92 dollars and 50 cents frank howard exclaimed oh wow what a bright little girl. And he ended up giving her 50 cents to go buy her and Beatrice candy. You know, they're having a good time. Their conversations are going well. And then he turns and he's like, say, how would you like to go to a little birthday party that my niece is having? There's some cake and maybe a balloon or two, some streamers. What do you say? And so like, she's excited a birthday party like even as like if i was invited to a birthday party i was like oh my god mom can i go like, like i want to go so bad it's a birthday party and i can't imagine how she must have felt when you know this gentleman that looked very grandfatherly he was he was described as this like elderly gentle man with a big mustache kind eyes he was five five about 130 pounds like he was like a small man like he looked like grandfatherly so she was like birthday party with him why not like he's been generous with my family already like this is gonna be great so the mom Delia was like oh my gosh it'd be perfect for her it's been hard times she needs to go out she needs to have some fun and do her some good her father it took some convincing but after you know Delia was like let the poor child go she doesn't see much good times her father was reluctantly agreed and was like okay but you gotta be home before nine o'clock and so like frank howard was like yeah yeah don't worry about it i'll make sure she's safe she's gonna have a great time bring her back have no fear and you know tomorrow the boys and i will go to my farm and we'll get life will go on you know delia ended up helping gracie into her coat with um a gray hat and streamers and kissed her goodbye and and then she and her husband watched as gracie and mr howard went outside watched them disappear down the street hand in hand the saddest part of this is that little did poor gracie and her parents know this was going to be the last time they saw each other before gracie would be tortured strangled to death and eaten it would be seven years before the man who brutally murdered her would stand trial so as everyone was looking for frank howard and the missing of gracie bud there were other children going missing some kids were saying like oh the gray man the gray man was was kidnapping kids he kidnapped my brother or he kidnapped uh, my friend there was just the story of this gray man coming in and kidnapping children okay so who was the gray man or aka the boogeyman and when did this this all case start. So it was February 11th, 1927, when four-year-old Billy Gaffney um, was playing with his three-year-old friend, also Billy, and they went missing. Later on, the father of the three-year-old Billy found him stranded alone on a rooftop, and the father was like, where is Billy Gaffney? Where's your four-year-old friend? And Billy, the, the three-year-old, responded with, the boogeyman took him. So the following day, the police came to investigate the, the missing boy. During the investigation, three-year-old Billy kept trying to tell them, the boogeyman boogeyman took him the boogeyman took him but because police and they have this thing with kids they wouldn't listen to him so at first like they thought that the boy just wandered outside of the factory building in the neighborhood they, they thought that billy gaffney was like just walked out and then fell into the canal and drowned or something they didn't they didn't listen to his friend um which makes me say guys if your kid's trying to tell you something what makes them think that they're like just listen to kids okay if a kid's like i heard a voice when i was sleeping or yeah i'm friends with mike and you're like who the fuck is mike like you're the only child in this house and like mike talk to me like you better listen to your kid okay kids have like very sensitive intellect at that young age i guess like i don't know just i've seen enough horror movies and read enough true crime to know if a child says something you better listen to the kid so finally the police what i'm trying to get us the police ignored him and then finally down the road they they were like okay what do you have to say and billy was like oh okay well this is what happened three-year-old billy mentioned that um he and billy gaffney were playing and some old man that looked like the boogeyman who was described as gauntly looking old had told them to come and play and then he had left billy stranded up on the roof while billy was taken away and the saddest part was even after Billy gave the description of the strange boogeyman, the police refused to listen. Now, I want to take your attention to a different disappearing of another child. This time, person that kidnapped this child was called the gray man and it was the disappearance of francis mcdonald francis mcdonald was playing in the front porch of his home um his mother was sitting nearby nursing her infant child when they saw this 
gaunt elderly man just walking up and down the street just clenching and unclenching his fist and just like muttering and mumbling incoherently like he looked like a freaking crazy dude they made eye contact and he ended up like tipping his hat to her in acknowledgement and then he ended up leaving and then later that afternoon that same day the same man that was seen walking up and down the street uh was seen watching francis playing with four of his other friends the old man called francis over to him you know the boys were still playing ball but they were just kind of ignoring what was happening and then a few minutes later both the old man and francis disappeared it was a neighbor that noticed that there was a boy that looked like francis that was just walking hand in hand with this strange old man in the wooded area and that they just disappeared in the wood the disappearance of francis was not noticed until he missed dinner they were like like, where's Francis? He never misses his meals. Like, where is our son? And his father, who was a policeman, organized a search and they found him in the woods under some branches. He had been horribly assaulted. His clothes had been torn from his back and he had been strangled with his suspenders. Francis had been beaten so badly. The beating was so severe that perhaps the old man had an accomplice who had the strength to maul the child. So on this manhunt that they were trying to find, they were looking for someone that had incredible strength that was tall and they had a lot of suspects that they had brought in for questioning, but none of them matched the description of frail old tiny man. However, the one person that could testify that could never forget his face was Anna McDonald. She said, and I quote, he came shuffling down the street, mumbling to himself, making queer motions with his hands. I'll never forget those hands. I shuddered when I looked at them. How they opened and shut. I saw him look towards Francis and the others. I saw his thick gray hair, his drooping gray mustache. Everything about him seemed faded and gray. So despite like the massive efforts from the police and the community, the gray man had vanished into thin air. So now you're like, Sophia, why are you covering three different people right now? Like, who is Frank Howard? Who is the boogeyman? Who is the gray man? Why are you talking about Albert Fish? Plot twist, they're all the same people. They're all the same person. And it wasn't until 1934, November, that Frank Howard, the gray man, and the boogeyman aka Albert Fish, was captured and brought to justice. So six years had passed since Gracie Budd's disappearance and the case was still opened. And the only reason why the case was opened was because of one man named William F. King who would continue to pursue this case. So like every once in a while, he would plant a phony item about a break in the case. And he worked on this with Walter Winchell. In order to keep the case open and going, he would just like be like, oh, we saw the man here, we saw the man there. They were about to close the the case they were like there's no way that we can find this guy and you guys have to remember like this was during the time when there was no cameras no dental records no way of really identifying there was no dna cases like there was none of those things to help like it was this was like before all of that came into play the only way to keep the case going was pretending that they were getting some information and this guy was resilient he was doing his best to find out what happened to gracie bud so uh walter winchell the guy that was also working on the case with William F. King, he wrote in a column. Um, he said, I checked on the Grace Bud mystery. She was eight when she was kidnapped about six years ago, and it's safe to tell you that the Department of Missing Persons will break the case or they expect to in four weeks. Not 10 days later, after that column was written, Delia Bud, the mother of Gracie Bud, um, received a letter, and due to the lack of her education, um, she wasn't able to read it, so she had her son Edward read it instead and ran out the door to get detective king the letter was just barbarous and i'm going to put a trigger warning here this goes into the details of her death and what happened to her and if you're very sensitive with children and with true crime cases i please skip ahead or just get out of this now because this letter it made me cry my dear mrs bud in 1894 a friend of mine shipped as a deckhand on the steamer Tacoma, Captain John Davis. They sailed from San Francisco for Hong Kong, China. On arriving there, he and two others went ashore and got drunk. When they returned, the boat was gone. At that time, there was a famine in China. Meat of any kind was from $1 to $3 a pound. So great was the suffering among the very poor that all children under 12 were sold for food in order to keep others from starving. A boy or girl under 14 was not safe in the street. You could go in any shop and ask for steak, chops, or stew meat. Part of the naked body of a girl or boy would be brought out and just what you wanted cut from it. A boy or girl's behind, which is the sweetest part of the body, 
and sold as veal cutlet brought the highest prices. John stayed there so long he acquired a taste for human flesh. On his return to New York, he stole two boys, one seven, one eleven, took them to his home, stripped them naked, tied them in a closet, then burned everything they had on. Several times every day and night, he spanked them, tortured them to make their meat good and tender. First, he killed the 11-year-old boy because he had the fattest ass and of course the most meat on it. Every part of his body was cooked and eaten except the head. He was roasted in the oven, all of his ass, boiled, broiled, fried and stewed. The little boy was next, went the same way. At that time, I was living at 409 East 100th Street near right side. He told me so often how good human flesh was. I made up my mind to taste it. On Sunday, June 3rd, 1928, I called on you at 406 West 15th Street, brought you pot cheese and strawberries. We had lunch. Gracie sat in my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her. On the pretense of taking her to a party, you said yes, she could go. I took her to an empty house in Winchester I had already picked out. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wild flowers. I went upstairs and stripped all my clothes off. I knew if I did not, I would get her blood on them. When all was ready, I went to the window and called her. Then I hid in a closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry and tried to run down the stairs. I grabbed her and she said she would tell her mama. First, I stripped her naked. How she did kick bite and scratch. I choked her to death, then cut her in small pieces so I could take my meat to my rooms, cook and eat it. How sweet and tender her little ass was roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not fuck her though. I could have if I wished. She died a virgin. So naturally, nobody wanted to believe that the letter was true. Obviously, it, it was it had to be the ravings of like some perverted sadistic crank. That's what everyone was saying. Detective King realized that the details of the meeting with the buds and Gracie was so accurate that it had to have been true. So the only real clue of this letter and where to find this guy, um, this Frank Howard, was through this letter, they had a small like hexagonal emblem and had the letters NYPCBA, which stood for New York Private Chauffeur Benevolent Association with the cooperation of the president of the association and the emergency meetings of the members at the police station. Detective King had asked the members that essentially any letters that passed through that had similar stationery or handwriting that they were to report to them immediately. And it was a young janitor that came forward admitting that he had taken a couple of the sheets of paper with that emblem, with the envelope. He said that he had left the stationery in his old rooming house. And there, the landlady was shocked that when she was given Frank Howard's description, that he sounded just like an old man that lived there for two months. They went to this place and the old man who had checked out the rooming had just arrived a couple days earlier, so he was there. And the former tenant that was living there a couple days prior, he called himself Albert H. Fish. And the post office, they told Detective King um, that they had intercepted a letter from Albert Fish. And so Detective King was becoming worried during this investigation with the envelope that Fish was scared off. So they were like, we need to move now. We need to move fast. It was on December 13, 1934. The landlady called Detective King and said, hey, Albert Fish is here. Uh, he's in the room. When they came, they found an old man sitting with a teacup and Fish ended up standing up. He nodded when King asked him if he was Albert Fish. And then suddenly Fish reached in his pocket and produced a razor blade, which he held in front of him. Infuriated, King ended up grabbing the old man's hand and twisted it sharply. And he said, I've got you now. I can't imagine how good it felt and even just how the amount of relief that one would feel when finally putting a close on a case that you've been working on for six plus years and just trying to find this man who has been brutally murdering children left and right. I just, I can't imagine the relief just like coming off of your shoulders and just being like, I finally did it. I also just like cannot imagine after that relief how anxious and just sad Detective King must have felt because it's like now that we've caught him 
we have to listen to all the abhorrent things that he has done to these kids. I'm sure like if I was in his place, I'd be like, well, what's going to happen now? Like, is he going to get the death penalty? Is he going to get life in prison? Or is he going to get away with this? Did we catch the right one? So when it came time to confess on Albert Fish's part, um, a lot of law enforcement officials and psychiatrists were involved. There were so many things being held back from running on the newspaper because it was quoted that it was an odyssey of perversion and unspeakable depravity. During the entire trial, people were like, there is no way that this was happening. Like, they couldn't really print the entire story out there because it was that gruesome. It confused people because when more and more information of how this man kidnapped these kids and brutally murdered them came to be, they just looked at him. They were like, how can this small, frail man do all this? He was 5'5", and with soaking wet, he was 130 pounds. Like, he was not a very big man. So, originally, he was actually going to kidnap Edward Budd um, and even uh, Willie Budd as well. But then he saw Grace. He, he changed his mind. He's like, I'm going to kidnap her instead. He said that he originally wanted to kidnap Edward, lure him to a remote location, restrain him, and then cut off his penis and leave him to bleed to death, essentially. So, when he first met the Budd family, what happened was he, he had come up to the Bud house and then he was like, hey, I saw that your son Edward Bud had left an editorial and um, an ad in the newspaper and I've come to introduce myself. I am Frank Howard. I have this farm. I feel like your son could be a perfect fit. Can I meet him? And so they had that meeting and he ended up meeting Edward Bud. And he was like, wow, this kid, he's like really big and strong, but I'm still gonna, I'm still gonna kidnap him. Uh, keep in mind at this point, this is the first day that he, he met with the Bud family, except he had not met Gracie Bud yet. And so with his first meeting with Edward, he ended up going home. He said he said he was gonna come by the following day to to take Edward with him. The day that he left, he ended up getting a meat cleaver. Um he also got a butcher knife and a saw and he wrapped them up and he went back to the Bud house the following day. That's when he met Gracie Bud and then he he changed his mind. He had ended up buying a one-way ticket to the Bronx to this village in Worthington in Westchester. And so after he kidnapped Gracie, um, they went on this 40-minute ride to the countryside. And this was like the, the second time in her life that she was able to get out of the city, be on a train. And so at the station in Worthington, he was so absorbed in his monstrous plan that he had ended up leaving behind his tools, his murder bundle, essentially. And ironically, it was Gracie that noticed and notified him like, hey, you're, you're leaving your bag behind. And so they ended up walking along a remote road until they reached an abandoned two-story home. And they called it the Wisteria Cottage. And it was in like the middle of the wooded area. So nobody from miles around knows like what's going to happen. Like nobody knows what this place essentially. So he ended up going inside the house and leaving her outside where she was picking wildflowers. And this this part broke my heart. Like she's so innocent. She doesn't know what's happening. She thinks she's going to a party. She was on a train for the second time of her life out of the city. And she was just, just the innocence of a child and just the things that she was about to go through just made, just broke my heart. So Fish went up to the second floor bedroom. Uh, he opened the bundle of his tools, laid it all out, took off his clothes, and then he called Gracie to come upstairs. So with wildflowers she had gathered into like a bouquet, she walks in and then she goes up to the bedroom and then she sees him naked and she just screams for her mother and she tries to run away. Fish ended up grabbing her by the throat, choked her to death. It said that he did not assault her body after she died, but he did say that he was very aroused by the fact that he strangled her. Another trigger warning, I'm getting into some really heavy details, so he propped up her head on an old paint can and decapitated her. He then caught most of the blood in a paint can. Afterwards, he threw the bucket of blood out into the yard. He ended up undressing the headless greasy bud. Then he went back to her body and cut it into two with a butcher knife and cleaver. Parts of her body he took with him wrapped in newspaper. The rest he left there until he returned several days later when he threw the portions of her body over a stone wall in the back of the house. He disposed of his tools in the same fashion. And after his confession, Detective King had a final question. What caused you to do this? And he responds, 
you know, I never could account for it. So Captain John Stein, who was also part of the investigation team, he had asked him, why did you write this letter to the Buds? Fish responded with, he didn't really know why. He said that I just had a mania for writing. A part of me also wonders if he like had read the article that was written early on and being like, no, she's actually dead. Like I killed her. Like she's gone. Because remember when I said like earlier, King was working with Walter Winchell who wrote the article and he said that, that they were about to break the case in about four weeks and implying that she was still alive and so like a wonder part of it was he read all this and i was like no because because it, it something interesting with like a lot of serial killers is that they take pride in the people that they've murdered they're very proudful egoistical prick their egos are so far up their ass so the investigation team they ended up going to the cottage where they recovered the remains of gracie the entire time fish was just standing nearby completely without any emotion of any kind fish was interrogated that night by assistant district attorney p francis morrow and morrow had asked fish why he murdered gracie fish explained he had and I quote, a sort of bloodthirst, and he it overwhelmed him. And then Morrow asked if he had raped Gracie and Fish was Adam, and he said, like, it never crossed my mind to sexually assault her. So in the letter to Mrs. Budd, um, Fish had mentioned how he had eaten uh, Gracie, and within the investigation, with the interrogation, they never really brought up the cannibalistic part of it because they were like, this is too insane for it to be true. And a part of it was also a tactic to make sure that he didn't get on the case of insanity. So they were trying to get him on the death penalty. And the only way to get away without like in order to plead insanity is you have to be like really batshit fucking crazy like i keep saying that a lot but like you have to plead insanity and to push the thought of he was a cannibal was pushing the lines of he was insane and they wanted this man desperately to be on death row like they didn't they didn't want him to spend the rest of his life in jail after they recovered gracie's body detective king drove mr bud and edward bud down to the police station to identify fish. Edward did more than identify fish. In fact, he threw himself at the old man. He was like beating him to a pulp. He's like, you old bastard, dirty son of a bitch. Like this is the older brother of Gracie. As someone who was an older sister to six other siblings, if that ever happened to one of my siblings, part of me would have been like, it should have been me because originally fish was targeting Edward. And then the minute he saw Gracie, he changed his mind. So a part of uh, me wonders like, did he have like survivor's guilt? It was said that Fish had no emotion. Uh, Mr. Bud ended up asking him, do you know me? And Fish said politely, yes, you're Mr. Bud. And uh, Mr. Bud responded with, and you're the man who came to my home as a guest and took my little girl away. When I read that, I was like sobbing at work. This poor family. I just, I, I can't. The, the amount of sympathy and empathy I have for this family. And before anyone comes after this family and being like, well, you should have known better. You have to understand like these times, like it was a very, I wouldn't say honest time, but like unlike today's society, there was like a lot of, I wouldn't necessarily say culture of trust, but there was this form of like, there wasn't stranger danger. Kids weren't necessarily getting kidnapped a lot. Although, however, during this time in New York City, there were a lot of kidnappings of kids. But you have to understand, like, again, this was during a time where stranger danger wasn't really a thing. This was a man that proved himself very trustworthy. He looked like a very gentle person. He already made a, a great connection with the kids. There was that trust and they had this trust for this man. So like, I, I don't know. I just I just wanted you to like take a step back and think about it for a second and put yourself in their shoes. At this time, Albert Fish was facing indictments in Manhattan and Westchester County. Westchester County indicted him on charges of first degree murder while Manhattan was preparing an indictment for kidnapping. During this time, time police got their major break so the mortarman on the brooklyn trolley line saw a picture of fish in the newspaper and he came forward and identified fish as the nervous old man that he saw in february 11th in 1927 you guys remember him apparently fish had a little boy with him and he was trying to quiet the little boy that was on the trolley and the little boy was then identified as none other than Billy Gaffney. Fish ended up confessing that he did unspeakable things to poor Billy Gaffney. He said, I brought him to the Riker Avenue dumps. There's a house that stands alone not far from where I took him. I took the boy there, stripped him naked, and tied his hands and feet and gagged him with pieces of dirty rags. Then I burned his clothes, threw his shoes in the dump, 
Then I walked back and took the trolley to 59th Street at 2 a.m. and walked from there home. Next day, about 2 p.m., I took tools, a good heavy cat and nine tails, homemade, short handle, cut one of my belts in half, slit these halves in six strips about eight inches long. I whipped his bear behind till the blood ran from his legs. I cut off his ears, nose, slit his mouth from ear to ear, gouged out his eyes. He was dead then. I stuck the knife in his belly and held my mouth to his body and drank his blood. I picked up four old potato sacks and gathered a pile of stones. Then I cut him up. I had a grip with me. I put his nose, ears, and few slices of his belly in this grip. Then I cut him through the middle of his body just below the belly button. Then through the legs, about two inches below his behind, I put this in my grip with a lot of paper. I cut off the head, feet, arms, hands, and the legs below the knee. This I put in sacks, weighed with stones, tied the ends, and threw them into the pools of slimy water you will see all along the road going to North Beach. I came home with my meat. I had the front of his body I liked best, his monkey and peewees, and a nice little fat behind to roast in the oven and eat. I made a stew out of his ears, nose, pieces of his face, and belly. I put onions, carrots, turnips, celery, salt, and pepper. It was good. Then I split the cheeks of his behind open, cut off his monkey and peewees, and washed them first. I put strips of bacon on each cheeks of his behind and then put them in the oven. Then I picked four onions, and when the meat had roasted about one-fourth of an hour, I poured about a pint of water over it for gravy and put it in the onions. At frequent intervals, I basted his behind with a wooden spoon so the meat would be nice and juicy. In about two hours, it was nice and brown, cooked through. I never ate any roast turkey and tasted half as good as his sweet, fat little behind it. I ate every bit of the meat in about four days. His little monkey was as sweet as a nut, but his peewees I could not chew. Threw them in the toilet. I want each and every one of you guys who is listening to remember that Billy Gaffney was four years old. That was brutally murdered and just... <sighs> I can't, I can't even wrap my mind around this. This is why I'm saying like this was like a very hard case to cover because again, children are involved. But the way this man had no, no humanity to him to do this to a four-year-old defenseless innocent child. After the man who came to identify him, the trolley man, another man came out. It was, he was from Staten Island and he came forward to identify Fish as a man who tried to lure his eight-year-old daughter into the woods, not far from where Francis O'Donnell was murdered three days later. Remember, Francis O'Donnell was the little boy that was strangled with his suspenders and was found in the woods by his father who was a policeman. Fish was also tied to the 1932 murders of a 15-year-old girl named Mary O'Connor in Far Rockaway. The girl's mold body was found in some woods close to a house that Fish had been painting. With all of these indictments in different counties, there was very little chance that Albert Fish was going to be acquitted. His only opportunity to beat the death penalty was to have the alienist or a forensic psychiatrist declare him insane. So we don't use the term anymore, but alienists is a psychiatrist who assesses the competence of a defendant in a court of law. So maybe we actually do use alienists. I don't know. But when people say the word alienist, I think of the Victorian time. This alienist, Dr. Frederick Weatherman, he ended up meeting Albert Fish and was and became like his, I wouldn't say prosecutor, his psychiatrist. He mentioned in his book that he read that he was really shocked by how meek and gentle and benevolent and polite Fish was, he's like, if you wanted someone to entrust your children with, it was him. When Fish was told that, hey, you're gonna die, he stated, I have no particular desire to live. I have no particular desire to be killed. It is a matter of indifference to me. I do not think I am altogether right. When Dr. Weatherman asked if, like, he meant, like, are you just insane? Like, are you just batshit crazy? Fish was like, no, not really. Like, I've I've never could understand myself, so like I'm not necessarily insane. When he went under psychosis treatment, Fish's family's history, mental history was brought up to the court. Essentially, they were trying to prove that he was mentally insane so he could, again, not have the death penalty and so like they, they just kept like bringing up like his medical history and then just like hey he ate a bunch of kids like no people of stable mind would have done this fish had told the doctor that he like ha always had a desire to inflict pain on others and to have others inflict pain on him he said i always seem to enjoy everything that hurt he never went back to the same neighborhood he always kept on moving he said that he had lived in at least 23 states and in each one he had killed at least one child sometimes he 
he would end up losing his job as a painter because he was suspiciously connected to these dead or mutilated children. Fish admitted that he had these compulsions to write really obscene letters and he did so frequently. He would write these letters and then he would just like send them out, fuck nowhere, and just be like, eh, surprise. He also told Dr. Withman that there were times where he would be sticking needles into his body for years in areas between the rectum and scrotum. He would say, uh, he said he told of doing it to other people too, especially children. At first he said he would only suck these needles in and pull them out again. Then he had stuck others in so far that he was unable to get them out and they stayed there. Dr. Wortham was like, he's got to be lying. Like there is no way. And so they ended up taking an x-ray and sure enough, they had found at least 29 needles in the pelvic region. There's like a picture of it. When you go and look at it, you can see, you can literally count 29 needles and you're just like, what the actual flying fuck? Fish would also say like, this was when he was like around 55 years old, but he confessed that like he would have hallucinations and he would say like God would come to him and demand human sacrifices. He said that happy is he that taketh thy little ones and dasheth their heads against the stones. He loved that quote. He would say that quote all the time. And like he literally did with his whole chest believe that God had ordered him to torment and castrate these little boys. But the one thing that Dr. Worthman was really surprised about was the fact that how unfazed and just how like naturally fish told him about the murder of Billy Gaffney and just like the explicit details that he went into. There was no emotions, no remorse. He just stated like matter-of-factly, like he was just like, yeah, this is what happened. This is what I did. I don't see what was wrong with it. So finally, it was the day of the trial. It began on Monday, March 11th, 1935. And this trial was for the death of Gracie Budd. This took place in White Plains, New York in Justice Frederick P. Close Court. Albert F. Gallagher was in charge of the prosecution and James James Dempsey was the defense attorney. Dempsey planned to attack the competence of the Bellevue Hospital alienist who observed Fish in 1930, who declared him sane. So remember how I said like they had a bunch of alienists come to see if he was insane or sane? Because if he was insane, then he would not have the death penalty. But if he was sane, then he would get the death penalties. His defense attorney was trying to fight that he was actually insane so he could live out his days in jail. He had planned to establish that Fish was suffering from, and I quote, lead colic a dementia often suffered by house painters are you are you actually fucking kidding me like i know it's your job to like you don't have a choice if you're given this case and you're like you have to defend this man but really lead colic now i know back in the day weird shit was put in paint like mercury and whatnot but like i know for a fact that kind of stuff in paint doesn't make you go kidnap children brutally murder them and eat them. I hate people sometimes. It was Gallagher's key strategy. Gallagher is the one that was in charge of the prosecution against Fish. He stated that, and he quotes, now in this case, there is a presumption of sanity. The proof briefly will be that this defendant is legally sane and that he knows the difference between right and wrong and the nature and quality of his acts, that he is not defective mentally, that he has a wonderful memory for a man his age that he has complete orientation as to his immediate surroundings and that there is no mental deterioration, but that he is sexually abnormal, that he is known medically as a sex pervert or a sex psychopath, and that his acts were abnormal, but that when he took this girl from her home on the 3rd day of June, 1928, and in doing that act and in procuring the tools in which he killed her, bringing her up here to Westchester County and taking her into his empty house surrounded by woods in the back of it, he knew it was wrong to do that and that he is legally sane and should answer for his acts. During the trial, it was a lot of back and forth of is he sane, is he not sane, proof that he was sane, proof that he was not insane, XYZ. And it wasn't until on the third day, over the strenuous objections of the defense attorney, a box of Gracie Bud's remains was brought into the courtroom as evidence. While Detective King recreated from Fish's confession how the girl was killed, then Gallagher reached into the box and held out the small skull of Gracie Bud. It was a very dramatic moment, and Dempsey sought a mistrial. Essentially, Dempsey knew in that moment, like he he lost. He was like, this guy is gonna die, which rightfully so. The trial ended up lasting for 10 days and the jury took less than an hour to reach its verdict. We find the defendant guilty as charged, the foreman said. Fish was not happy with the verdict, but the prospect of being electrocuted had its appeal to him. The Daily News reporter wrote, 
His watery eyes gleamed at the thought of being burned by a heart more intense than the flames of with which he often seared his flesh to gratify his lust. Fish thanked the judge for a sentence of death by electrocution, and on January 16, 1936, Albert Fish was executed. Like I said, this entire case was very intense. I mean, I spent maybe two weeks just trying to get as much as I can to learn about this, but also just take some time to like, because I did it like I, I came back and forth to it because I was like, there was times where I read something so intense and so disturbing that I was just like, I can't, I don't think I should do this. And then I'd step away and then be like, you know what? No, like I'm going to get back to this. Like I started, I'm going to finish it. So here we are. What are your thoughts on Albert Fish? Clearly, you know where, where I'm at with Albert Fish. There isn't much, there really isn't much to say about this man, except for the fact that like, I hope he's in hell. And like, I know that's really hard harsh to say, but like this man took so many innocent children's lives, went after people who who are just, again, who are children. So yeah, tell me about your thoughts. Tell me what you thought of the first episode. And until next time, stay hydrated, be kind to yourselves, and I'll see you later. Not another scary story.